Hey, John. Hey, Chris. You ready to start the show? Absolutely. Let's go ahead and jump right into the pledge. Odenkirk is my spirit Chris, Chris, animal. whoa, whoa, whoa. He Chris. Is, uh, what? We can't do the pledge. Why not? Did I not tell you about that scary letter I got last week? We got slapped with an RFP. An RF, what, what's that? It's a refrain from pledging. Oh, no. We absolutely can't do this. I thought we were approved. We filed an 1129B. What we actually filed, Chris, was an 1129C. So you know what that means. Mm, no. I'll put it to you this way. No pledge, but we did get the go-ahead for an above-ground pool. What, we don't even want an above-ground pool. I know. I know. All right. We'll just start the music. Well, uh, welcome, everybody, to episode eight of Saul Searching, where we are going to be talking about episode eight of Better Call Saul, called RICO. Yeah. Which stands for the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Okay. They usually just say RICO. If there's an ongoing criminal investigation of like a criminal organization, it allows you to charge the people at the head of the organization. It's how they take down mob bosses and people like that. You know, the, yeah. the, there's a guy who who makes all the calls from the shadows, and there's other people running around doing the doing the crime. Right, FBI stuff. I wonder if when they named Rico, uh, if they were thinking about Rico, the uh, Edward G. Robinson character from uh, Little Caesar, Pizza Pizza. No, not that Little Caesar. It's a it's an old gangster film. You know, he's like. Yes, hey, Rico. There wasn't a part where Edward G. Robinson said, Yes, hey, pizza, pizza. Well, I haven't seen it in a while. There, <laughs> there could be. Before we jump right into the episode, I, I had a couple little bits of business I wanted to cover, and they're kind of related to this week and last week's episode. Uh, it's a new feature. If we did have features on this show, I guess we would call this feature. We were both right, kind of. Oh, okay. Because l last week we speculated about a couple different things, and I think this week we got answers for a couple of those things. We found out that that my uh, supposition was, was somewhat right, or it seems to be right, that at least for the time being, Mike's past is put to bed. Yeah, at least this week. We didn't see those guys, yeah. And also, I feel like this week we got a little bit of corroboration that Jimmy was really just trying to get Chuck to do some of his work. Instead of, I don't remember what your thought about it was. I suppose that he was kind of throwing a lifeline. Oh, right, trying to help him out a little bit. But it had that effect, so maybe he maybe he accidentally did that while he was really just trying to Tom Sawyer him. That was, we were both right, kind of. Yeah. Probably. You know, we don't know. That's kind of, That's not a very good name for a feature, but we'll probably <laughs> figure out something. Tighten that up. On to this week's episode. I don't know. What are your general thoughts about getting into specifics? I thought it was a great episode, and it, it kind of felt to me through the first half or so that it almost was going to be self-contained. You could have put this whole adventure with getting involved with this, uh, uh, you know, possibly corrupt nursing home uh, little adventure and—, and you could have put all that in one episode and, and wrapped it up. It almost felt through the first half or so that it could have been like a Matlock episode where we're going we're gonna to do everything in, in one episode and have a little one-off. Uh, but they, of course, being Better Call Saul, they didn't do that. It's going to at least last into the next episode. Uh, but it still had that fun, uh, adventurous feeling of, of getting deep into this thing that just started in the last few minutes. It did feel like it could have been a case of the week. And if this were just the adventures of of James McGill, Esquire, Elder Law Specialist, this would have been a caper that that would have been easily resolvable within an episode, I, I, I guess. Right. But then, as as happens in Albuquerque, every little thing can lead to some big thing. And so it could, could be a multi-million dollar case. Uh, all kinds of people can end up getting, trouble, getting in trouble. So, uh, mm -hmm. 
you never know where they're going to go with things. Uh, I want to make one note, and then we'll jump into the actual recap of the plot. Um, this was an episode that really dealt a lot with legal ins and outs and a lot of legal speak. And I, I know we discussed before we started recording that we aren't quite sure we know if, if we fully understood all the kind of legalese that was being tossed around in this episode. But I think we got the broad strokes because these writers are good at l- letting you feel what the emotional beats are. But I was looking around online before we recorded, uh, and I found a blog called ethicsofbettercallsaul.tumblr.com, and it is written by an unnamed, I suppose, uh, ethics lawyer in New York who, she says she does look at New York law, but she also branches out and looks at what New Mexico law would be in some cases if she's not sure uh-huh. what the real ethics of Jimmy's situation is. But essentially, the, the point of the blog is to assess Jimmy's behavior as a lawyer. That's a cool idea for, for a blog, and maybe it will help us fill in some of our gaps. Into the episode, right from the start, it's another flashback, but we didn't know exactly where we were, but we very quickly can figure out that this is a more recent flashback than any of the others that we've had, because this is Jimmy after his promise to Chuck, and I would say it's more evidence that Jimmy is making an honest go of it, you know, that he really is trying to stop being slipping Jimmy, and he really is working his way up. I mean, he's working in the mailroom. He doesn't seem angry or or sad about his lot in life. He seems like he's really uh, slugging away. Yeah. You know, we can get into whether we totally believe that the uh, University of American Samoa is a real university and all that. I, I, I think at this point the show wants us to believe that it is a real correspondence school. Yeah. That that's enough of a joke that he got a, a, a law degree from a correspondence school. Right. And he's amongst all these high-powered lawyers at this big firm. Go land crabs. Just lurking in the back of my mind is the idea that maybe Jimmy, you know, falsified that. But it, it's hard to make that scan with what we saw in this episode, which was a seemingly very open and sincere Jimmy. And then you also see that he's, our, you know, that Kim works there in a smaller office. Maybe she's in the cornfields at the beginning of this. We don't know. But she's in a tiny little, looks like a copier room kind of Yeah, room. I wonder if she's a paralegal or something. You know, Jimmy, of course, is wearing a short sleeve button down shirt, which is the sort of film shorthand for a an underachiever, a guy with a tie and a and a and a short sleeve button down on. Right, unless it's a 1960s NASA scene. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh yeah, but then you have horn rims. That changes the whole thing. You have horn rims and a pocket protector. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the next moment we see that he's got a piece of mail for himself and he's afraid to open it and he gets Kim to open it, which again is what a con man would do if he was trying to put one over on everybody. But I'm I'll rest that theory until we have more reason to suspect him. Yeah, I think this is just an idea of yours, and it's a good idea that he'd never even pass the bar. But yeah, it might never be an idea. Kim opens the letter. She sees that he he passed the bar. She's thrilled for him. It seems like she knew he was trying but to have that he just was keeping it from his brother makes a lot more sense and then of course they kiss and i practically i was i was like (gasps) evidence that they had some kind of history at this point they were on a kissing basis at one point in history so jimmy goes to show the letter to chuck and he's very busy he doesn't seem to have time for jimmy he doesn't seem to really pay jimmy a lot of respect and i think that was a theme in this episode was people not paying jimmy a lot of respect but you can see there's some genuine begrudging pride that comes over him throughout the episode. Yeah. Jimmy mentions to Chuck that he would like to get a job at the firm. I felt like Chuck sort of knew it was a no-go, but didn't want to be the one to tell Jimmy in that moment. Like he really, he probably did go talk to the other partners, but it didn't seem like Chuck was really on board with the idea of Jimmy working at the firm. Right. He let him know that there's a chance this isn't going to happen. Then the next scene is a really artfully shot little scene. It's shot from the other side of a glass window where we see Jimmy and his mailroom buddies and Kim. And she's down there because I guess she's a friend of Jimmy's. I didn't really picture that she came up from the mailroom, too. But that was something that crossed my mind. Yeah. And then Howard Hamlin comes in. And he kind of sweeps in and ushers everybody out and takes a piece of cake. And the door closes. 
and we see it all on their faces. But we know he's telling Jimmy, no go. You know, yeah. we're, you're not going to work at the firm. Yeah. And we see Jimmy just kind of take it. And then Howard gets his cake and he says, uh, thanks for understanding, Jimmy. Uh, let's reassess in six months. Yeah. And I liked how in the foreground we left, we leave Jimmy at that moment. And it's another great sound design moment for the show that throughout this whole scene, we've heard the copier in the foreground going off because we're on the outside of that window. Right. And then after Howard leaves, Jimmy sits there silently and nobody comes back. But you still have the congratulations banner and you still have the cake and the balloons and everything. Yeah. And you're just listening to the copier. Yeah. But I love getting all these flashbacks from uh, various phases of Jimmy's life, one after the other, and uh, it, I want to see, you know, more and more of them, and then at some point somebody do the uh, chronological supercut of scenes that take place before Better Call Saul. You watch his, his, his life as it, as it builds towards this show. After the titles, the first scene is Howard coming to Kim's office, and she's settling back in after being sent away. You see her hanging her... her her degree on the wall and straightening it. Back from the cornfield. And they go out to make an announcement that is on the news, which is basically Howard, you know, speaking about the Kettleman's, and we don't hear the full details of it, but we do understand that the story that he's selling to the press is basically the deal that we knew about, that they turned themselves in. Right. So Jimmy's watching that on the news, and you can see it's kind of, again, it's vexing him, but he's, he's going on about his day. He's visiting with a client who is Miss Landry, and he's there, and it looks like he's doing his standard will package for her because it's a $140 charge. Yeah. Unlike the situation before with Miss Strauss, I believe, she does not have the money. It's just not playing right with him that she's that she's broke, and the couple things she says about how her money's being handled um, makes makes him think and then makes us think that maybe the, uh, the Sandpiper, the retirement village, is defrauding her in some way. Yeah. And I don't know if, that, if that's customary that when you live in a facility like that, that you, they take over your funds and then issue you money. That sounds yeah. a little unethical. Sounds like a big red flag to me, yeah. So that sets Jimmy off. He wants to go check out a few things. It just seems purely altruistic what he's doing. I mean, outside of the fact that he may be thinking, this can benefit me or this can benefit my clients, it does seem like it's the wrongdoing uh, that ignites some aspect of him in that moment. And I found that to be, again, a, a, a far cry from Saul Goodman. Yeah. Well, you never know what's what's in his mind. What's the balance between, oh, I've found some uh, bad behavior here. Uh, maybe I can make this right for these people. And, hey, I, I, may have, I may have just found a big class action suit I can do and get a lot of money for myself. So somewhere in between that spectrum is where he sits. Yeah, and then the lady from the front desk spies him talking to the residents of the home, and that lets you know that there's going to be trouble. <clears throat> so the next scene, Jimmy is at Chuck's place, and Chuck basically accuses him of, of expecting him to do his work, and he says that great line about, you wanted to play Tom Sawyer, you wanted me to paint the fence. Right. And Jimmy has this great comeback. He says, um, yeah, yeah, self-reliance is great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> but he's kind of blowing him off and saying, but here, read this. I need you, you know, he needs him to, to look at the... Uh, uh, the lady's receipt and uh, uh, see that something's going on. So then Jimmy goes back to the the Sandpiper facility to, I guess, to get more information, to speak to Miss Landry, maybe to speak to other clients. But this time they're stopping him at the door. They they basically accuse him of soliciting and say that he's not going to be allowed in. And and Jimmy kind of sees that he's not going to actually make it past the two burly security guys that they've got there. Yeah, and he said, "I love that he says, uh, what are you making, Soylent Green back there?'" <laughs> right. And then he claims to get IBS, and I can't remember what he said, but he sort of implies that he, he his bowels are irritated by like the the excitement of what's just happened. Right. <laughs> 
and and he goes to the bathroom, and I didn't know quite what he was doing there, but this is, again, another case where I guess this is what, you know, probably he could have gone home and written up a more professional-looking letter and typed it up, and it would have been the same effect. So maybe he kind of jumped the gun, but there's something to be said for serving someone, I guess, right. when they're when they're not expecting it. Yeah, this makes it official, he said, or something to that effect, and uh, I think that kind of uh, was, yeah, behind the drama of him locking himself in the bathroom so he could do that just because, I guess, if you... Uh, send a letter in the mail. They can say, "Oh, we didn't get your letter," and they can take you know a month or two getting around to getting back to you. But if you if you say this is a, a letter of demand and it's in your hand right now, you know he gets thrown out. He says they're making a big mistake, which again feels like a very Jimmy thing to do. In that moment, he must have just seemed utterly ridiculous to them. And again, people don't take Jimmy seriously. Well, he's like a cartoon man. He's 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 fast talking and over the top, and now he's wearing a white suit. And so, so the next scene is a scene with Mike in the booth. Stacy calls him. And he takes out a phone that's big even for 2002. <laughs> and I, I read that scene as a little bit of a softening. Like you see Mike kind of, he, do, he doesn't smile, but you can see that he realizes based on the fact that Stacy is calling him to care for Kaylee while she's busy, that that means he did not ruin his relationship with his granddaughter or estrange himself from her by telling Stacy the truth. It was a pretty normal interaction between a daughter-in-law and a father-in-law. It was not something that was tortured by this history that they, they both know about. I felt like, uh, at first blush, it's a very pedestrian scene because there's nothing wild about it. You've got a, a woman calling her father-in-law and saying, can you take care of the kid when I have to go to work? And him saying yes. Uh, so that's almost, you know, not a scene you would put in a show. But, it, but what, what happens is the way he says... Uh, anything you need, it's not an imposition. You know, he really makes very clear, I'm here for you so strongly, uh, you know, uh, as uh, about as emphatic as Mike gets, uh, that, you know, he'll do anything. And uh, so it just underlines to me uh, his his devotion to helping them out, which is going to uh, come out more later. Right. Well, I think it's both things. I mean, I think that's it's like definitely two sides of the same coin. One is Mike is letting her know he'll be there for her, but also it's Stacy calling him to ask him to watch her child, basically not treating him like a corrupt cop who right. who she suspects murdered two men. Right. <laughs> We're in the zone of where he was when he was taking Kaylee out for ice cream or whatever uh, during the run of Breaking Bad, you know, or when he bought her the balloons or whatever. Like we now see that relationship blossoming. Right. So Jimmy at night, is is watching the severe woman in the striped sweater leave the the sandpiper facility and um he's checking out the dumpster and he gets just near it and he gags from the smell of it right. not to be crude or crass or ageist but i immediately thought adult diapers yeah and thought oh what a disgusting uh, uh dumpster that would be and just various old people smells <laughs> which yeah anything an old person spits up or spits out or throws in the trash or keeps in their room for too long and then throws out and all the rotted food right and 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 being in the dumpster is just distressing for jimmy and i thought for me as a viewer like i was hating that for him in, in a way that I would almost more than I hate physical pain for a character. I hate having to deal with something disgusting yeah. like that, you know? Well, and they pushed it as far, you know, as we do nowadays on, on, on TV, we, we say, let's make this as extreme as we can so that the viewer has a really heightened experience, but don't make it quite so extreme that they stop watching our show. But, you know, I feel like that's the trend of modern entertainment and, uh, and they do it here. We, I mean, we knew from the fact that he, you know, he had to pause for, it seemed like five or ten seconds before he got his nerve up to go in. So you already feel like, like you know how awful this is. But then, 
once he's in there, they go ahead and say, oh, let's show them an adult diaper he, he actually accidentally picks up, and let's have some trash dumped on his head. You know, let's just, just push it as far as we can. And let's have some trash dumped on his head that appears to be leaking shit down his face. <laughs> Right, we don't know what this is. Uh, I thought it was collard greens or something, it, but it, what, it's terrible. It was definitely brown, and it definitely dripped. So it was either shit or like coffee grounds and, and, or something. Yeah, let's go coffee. And again, we talked about Jimmy suffering. I mean, he's suffering here for sure. <laughs> like that is that yeah. is suffering. Right, and we're enjoying watching him suffer. Then he gets the call from the uh, Sandpiper's lawyer in there, and I thought this was really smart that they just went ahead and put that whole phone call in there because they could have easily... It seems like you would have done this phone call just in a, a breakfast scene or while he's in his office at the nail salon. It just would have been a call between lawyers. To me, it was like a great moment of like sitcom uh, fun when he says, why do you, why are you being quiet? And he says he's at the opera, Yeah, <laughs> which is such a, it's like one of those lies that I guess you would want to have. It's better to say something quick than to dick around if you're going to lie. But it was such a funny, silly lie. And then he asked what opera and then he says the magic flute. I mean, it's just I, I don't know. It's right. He's at the fanciest place you can be the the cleanest most wonderful right spot in the world rather than the worst possible spot in the world rick schweikart is the name of the 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 lawyer for sandpiper and there's no way for him to know that jimmy is hiding in a dumpster but it almost seems like he knows he's calling a man who who submitted this crazy letter on cardboard and toilet paper right exactly and it's another case like howard hamlin like chuck like kim to some extent just not taking Jimmy seriously, not believing him when he says he's got something. Yeah. And I love that as after the guy, he says, enjoy the magic flute, and uh, hangs up, and, and Jimmy says, blow my magic flute. <laughs> then gets out of the dumpster, and what I think is a hilarious gag, I mean, this is just pure comedy, then sees the recycling bin like five feet away that would, would have had the shredded paper in it for sure. You know, Right, and it's right there for the taking with no trouble at all. Right, yeah. The next scene is him bringing a bag, a, a nice clean bag of shredded paper in. And of course, now he's wearing jeans and a t-shirt. You can tell he, he had himself a, a shower. So, you know, he's at Chuck's sorting through the shredded paper. And um, we see it through a time lapse that he works through the night. And it's a typical, I mean, that's something they've done all along on Breaking Bad. And they've done a few times on this show. So I kind of feel like it's a, it's a, it's a, when they do it, it's a very deliberate touch that they throw in. So Jimmy, after working through the night, he's he's still at it, and we can see it's morning time, and Chuck's coming down the stairs. He goes off to make the coffee and comes back with it, and Jimmy's asleep. And it was so sweet. It was such a great big brother, little brother moment. Chuck goes and tucks a, a, a pillow under Jimmy's head, and then we see immediately sets to work on the shredded paper himself. Right. And uh, I found I love the little moments of tenderness between the two of them. And this was a great Jimmy and Chuck episode because there was a lot of warmth exchanged and a lot of like moments that felt momentous because because their relationship seems to be evolving. Right. Well, it definitely comes up in the next bit where Jimmy wakes up and he finds Chuck having pieced everything together. And basically Chuck says, uh, you know, I want to work on this with you or he allows us how that might happen. And Jimmy it gives him a big hug, you know, and I love the way that ties in with the, the opening. So often the, the, the flashbacks that we have at the opening sometimes tie in with the episode, and that's where this hits because you've seen, you know, you've gone back to see how, how he, how Jimmy worked for so long and looked up to his brother uh, and finally passed the bar, and now we see a, a time uh, in the distant future when... Uh, they're going to work together on a case, and it's just emotional for Jimmy. So it's nighttime again, and we can see that means Jimmy has slept through most of the day, and Chuck has sorted through most of the day. And uh, he refers to the smoking gun, which is the receipt that proves that Sandpiper has ordered 
syringes from a, a medical supply company called Morrison Medical Supply. Those syringes being shipped from that company is a very significant detail. And at the time, I didn't quite understand how that was the smoking gun. But later, we'll get into a little bit more of why that is why that is what really interests Chuck. Uh, and so Jimmy goes to call Kim. And he says, hey, gorgeous. And, and, she, and she knows he wants something right away. And she says, you're lucky I'm a pushover when he asks her basically to copy all these cases for him. So there, there's a charge that gets put on an account. And everybody at the, at the firm seems to have a number. And uh, Jimmy's number doesn't work anymore. But, uh, and he can't use Howard's. <laughs> so he uses Chuck's. That feels like a very significant detail because even Kim at that moment says, wait a minute, Chuck's working with you on this? Or does he know you're using his number? And Jimmy tells her what's going on. And rather than saying, oh, this sounds interesting. I want to be involved. Tell me more. She's like suspicious. Like, wait, doesn't Chuck still works for the firm? How can he do this? It worries me. It seems to set up that you don't know if Chuck's going to uh, get in trouble for working on this because especially if it turns into a multi-million dollar thing, uh, and he, and he, you know, maybe he could lose his partnership at HHM and, uh, he's got a $17 million stake in it. Or he could lose the ability to take the case outside of the firm. I mean, I'm sure for Chuck, it would just be, maybe we'll bring the case to the firm and then Jimmy right. gets shut out. Right. So the next scene is Mike and Kaylee and Stacy comes back and, and, you know, she's ready to relieve him and you can tell they've had a nice time and he's, he's making sure she knows it. You can tell he wants this to be a part of his life. Stacy then shows him the money, and and I could tell Mike would have been happy if he could have never looked at that money again, you know, because I'm, I'm yeah. sure that envelope to him is is his son's blood, you know. Yeah. And and Stacy, I don't know, what did you think of that scene? Because here was my thought on the face of it. Again, a very pedestrian, very obvious thing. She's asking, "What do you think I should do with the money?" She's asking, "It would, you know, she's saying it would really help." She's saying it really doesn't help as much as I need it to. Right. Did you feel a little bit of manipulation coming from Stacy in that moment? Well, that's a good question because she she could be, but we don't know her to be like that at all. So at this point, I'd like to go ahead and assume that, uh, like you said, she's just mentioning offhand. It's only a drop in the bucket. Um, but um, but I like that you know after she says it's only a drop in the bucket, we 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 see Mike's reaction to that and. To me, it looked like oh, he's got a twinkle in his eye, like he's he's thinking, oh, I really need to do something to get her some money. Now I, I, I'm, I'm noticing how hard it is for her. I should I should do something. But really, I realized, I rewound it to look at it again because I realized it's just that it's the Kuleshov effect, you know, where somebody's face is completely blank, but you read your own thoughts into it, you know. So he's doing just the minimum. You just stand there. It's like, let's get him standing there for three seconds. And uh, it's human nature to go like, yep, I see what he's thinking. I see a twinkle in his eye. He wants to be a part of his granddaughter's life, and that's why he wants to live a, a normal life. But he also sees that to really help them, he has to step outside of that. So it's a little bit of a bind, you know, that he's in. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe he feels like I'm already, I've been a dirty cop all my life, and I, I know that world, and that's that's what I know how to do. So back from the commercial break, Rick, Rick Schweikart gets the facts and looks pissed. So, yes, you can see that Sandpiper's lawyers are coming to Chuck's and there's going to be a negotiation. I don't know. They don't put a lot of stock in Chuck in his current predicament. It seems that Chuck does loom large in, in the, the local legal community. Yeah. But uh, I think everyone thinks he's lost his mind, you know, which might be accurate. Right. They're sort of like, oh, yeah, I've heard about this when, yeah. when, when Jimmy mentions that they're going to have to leave all their stuff outside. 
And Chuck's having anxiety about facing him, and he seems really shaken up in a way that he didn't before, like in the scenes leading up to this. Right. We're finally seeing him have anxiety about doing something in law, uh, and that makes, you know, to me, that kind of connected with his his uh, electromagnetism allergy. You know, it's like, oh, we, you know, we've finally seen, yeah, anxiety around that. And I don't think that uh, Schweikart and his team really go out of their way to make it any more civil, even though it's like one of those kind of like veiled insults when he, you know, he mentions to Chuck that they actually had worked together before and kind of reminds him of of that and, and says, I figured you'd be arguing in front of the Supreme Court someday, uh, implying that'll never happen now, right? Yeah. Chuck really seemed to be cowed in this scene. And I think even Jimmy seemed to be looking at Chuck like he was surprised Chuck wasn't taking more of an active role in the conversation. And I kind of, that to me was like an alarm uh, of, uh-oh, what if this conversation goes south because Jimmy's not really equipped and Chuck leaves him high and dry? I didn't know if Chuck was going to have a meltdown right there at the table or what. Well, it seemed like he was frozen. You know, it got to where, oh, he it went long enough without him talking that it felt like, oh, no, Chuck's frozen and he's sitting there looking kind of sad to me and... uh he's he's just not in the game and uh so so yeah maybe jimmy will will screw this up because he doesn't have the help of chuck but then chuck just chimes in uh, 20 million that's that's what we demand and then i thought oh has he been sitting there uh just you know quietly sitting in the power position this whole time and just being quiet just because he's above the whole thing and uh and that was kind of a misread, you know, that we had. Maybe a, pur- a purposeful misread, you know. Maybe they set us up to think one thing's happening and, and something else is happening. I think it's almost one and the same, that Chuck is out of practice. Yeah. And he was in that meeting, he was kind of, he, there was a little bit of flop sweat that was occurring, but he was still doing what he would have been doing, which was listening and, and getting the lay of the land. Right. Uh, Schweikart and his team are ready. I mean, they know what the accusation is. Schweikart was ready to settle out of court for a, an amount that could be nominal. And I don't know, I mean, you know, 100000 sounds like a lot of money to me, but I'm sure in this case, the money these people have been bilked is a lot more than that. Right. So maybe it was the readiness of them to come forward with this settlement that, that sort of was one of those pieces of information that Chuck was taking in. Yeah. Because I can see how, oh, they, they actually tried to settle. That means where there's smoke, there's fire. Right. There's some validity to this fraud claim. And then they have what they call the smoking gun, which is the receipt from the shipping company, which proves that there was, you know, these syringes shipped from out of state. Suddenly it becomes, to the episode's title, a RICO charge, right. which is, is a federal matter. And, and this gets the backs of Schweikart's team up. And, and they basically come back with, okay, well, then you've got a fight on your hands. Is that how you read that situation? Yeah, basically Chuck and Jimmy are just in the position now to say, Oh, this is a this is a federal case, and so uh, twenty million dollars. You know, this is this is really big. But I wondered if, in that, uh, you know, it kind of felt to me like, gosh, maybe Chuck doesn't have uh, twenty million is such a jump. <laughs> maybe he doesn't have enough information, and he went a little crazy with that number because, uh, uh, you know, we're not even sure. It seemed like there was something in his line or the line after that that made me feel like, oh, we don't even. He doesn't even know how many. Uh, nursing homes they have or whatever, and he jumped to twenty million, so he might be uh, kind of overdoing it. Well, I I, ha- I had the exact same note. I wrote down, "Boy, it seems like Chuck is overstepping." Yeah, but I don't Which, know what makes us think that. But there's something to it that so- something about it, the way they, the way they phrased it, that makes you worry about that. I just want to mention there was something that came up in this scene that made me realize it was a bit of a theme, is that when Jimmy was talking about the University of American Samoa in the first scene, he says, "Go land crabs." 
And then when uh, they're talking about the medical supply company being in Nebraska, Jimmy says, go Cornhuskers. Oh, right. So he's, he seems to have a, a working knowledge of, of mascots. <laughs> right. And going from that, we go to the sneaky vet's office where Mike uh, has has gone in with a dog and, and he is he's going to talk to the vet. And we can tell he's probably there to talk to the vet about the sort of work that the vet alluded to that he might be able to get for him. This brings us to what I'm going to call our listener observation of the week. Oh. Because uh, your friend and mine, Andrew Vernon, posted on our Twitter feed, did Mike adopt a dog just as an excuse to go see the criminal vet? Which I think is a question I had too, like where did that dog come from and is that dog going to be part of Mike's life going forward? Did you have any thoughts about that? I had that exact feeling when I saw the dog. I was like, Mike, I don't think Mike has a dog. I think he just got this dog just so he could... Yeah, not look too unnatural coming in here, but um, I hope he's nice to it and keeps it and loves it rather than, you know, just turning it in <laughs> like 10 minutes later. Somehow Mike seems like a guy who would who would want to thwack you if you were uh, if you were cruel to animals, too. You know what I mean? Mike has a Mike seems to have that kind of gruff morality. I don't I don't somehow picture him being cruel. Right. But that was such a that was such a funny little little lap dog kind of dog that if if it does turn out to be Mike's dog, uh, that would be funny and cute. And also, if it were something he gave to Kaylee and Stacy, that would also be sweet. So yes, let's hope we see more of that dog. Yeah. Also, in the same tweet, Andrew quoted the line that Mike has: "You tell me what you got, and I'll tell you what I'll do." It's interesting because it's just a wide open thing. It's a great setup for um, doing anything in the world. It's like a it's like taking a an assignment in Grand Theft Auto or something. You don't know uh, if he's going to be smuggling money or uh, stealing someone's guns or murdering somebody or protecting somebody. You know, there's a hundred different assignments that he could get, and so it's a a wide-open situation that that sets up. And also you wonder if they're going to say, will you do this, and he'll refuse a job or two before before he finds something that's within his... Uh, limits. And the question I have is, at this point, is the vet going to put Mike in touch with someone who gets him work? Or is it going to be a running thing where Mike goes to the vet with his little dog and gets an assignment to go kill somebody? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the criminal veterinarian is is kind of a funny concept. That is. And you could keep him. Uh, yeah, you could keep him in a position of, of a go between uh, between Mike and, and the underworld for for a while and do a lot with him. Or we could just never see him again. When when that scene ended with Mike, I, I thought, well, I, that somehow didn't feel like the, the 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 gut punch or the feeling that you want to get at the end of one of these episodes. They always leave you with a, an unresolved feeling, and that felt like a very resolved feeling because we knew Mike was going to eventually get into that kind of work. Yeah. But the next scene was the beat that, that I was kind of looking for. Jimmy is arriving at Chuck's house, and again, it's a nice daytime scene, and Chuck's at work at the desk, and, and Jimmy's... In his in his suit, and Chuck's asked Jimmy to do certain things for him, and Jimmy's gone and done them, and and they just seem like they're talking like coworkers, you know, who are who are or colleagues who are who are working a case together. And Jimmy wants to take a nap on the couch for just a minute. He's come in from a lot of work, and he's kind of talking about these mall walking clients he's been picking up, which is just a funny image of him doing yeah. the same thing he does at the nursing home, but out at the mall, chasing down oldsters at the mall. Right, and so Chuck asks. Uh, Jimmy, if he brought him the uh, whatever he said, I again, if I were a lawyer, I would have caught what that was. But Jimmy said it's in the car. And I didn't know if it was even really in the car. I didn't know what the the beat at the end of the show was going to be. But Chuck sees Jimmy's conked out on the couch and he just decides because he's working, because he's focused and because he's kind of distracted maybe from himself. 
he just casually goes outside, gets the operates the key fob, you know. Yeah. Gets the thing out of the car. Doesn't seem to notice anything, which again sort of proves the psychological aspect of it. But I think what we didn't yep. know before was: does Chuck accept, or would Chuck accept? the idea of the psychological reality of his condition, meaning he was not aware of the little dirty trick that the doctor played that time. Right. We knew, and it's again, it, it, it's, it's part of that, that onion that they do. They, we started with Chuck's condition as a, what's going on here? Then we thought we knew what was going on. Then we saw evidence that Chuck was not faking it. Then we saw evidence that he really um, felt like he was going through something crazy. Then we saw evidence that it was psychological, and we've seen, you know, what I mean. We've seen all these different levels of Chuck's condition, and now the current point is we now know that Chuck is aware that his condition is psychological. I wonder almost if Jimmy didn't kind of—it's a little bit like he told the the coyote to look down or yeah. something like that, because Chuck was just whistling and coming back in with the box. Right. My feeling was that it's left on that moment where we don't know it what's going to happen in the next second, you know, because I think. Uh, Chuck can either say to himself, like the coyote going off the cliff, yeah, he can either say, oh my God, what am I doing out here? And he can double over in in pain, uh, or he can say, hey, look at me, I'm okay, it must really be all in my mind, you know, so I kind of feel like in that exact second where they stop the show, like almost Jimmy could have some control if Jimmy said, Oh my God! What are you doing out there? You're gonna die! You know, then Chuck would freak out. Uh, but if Jimmy said, "Chuck, look at yourself. You're cured," then Chuck would be like, uh, "Oh my God! I'm all right. I just touched the key fob." You know. Uh, so I really wonder if the next episode is gonna pick up with that same second and us see what's next. But he drops the box, and it was such a far, they did such a far away shot on the very last shot. I had to like rewind it and lean forward to see because there was a noise and I I didn't know if it was Chuck collapsing or him dropping the box, but it's him dropping the box. So it gives you a little hope that he didn't just collapse. Well, but see, I felt like that was significant because I think that if Chuck had collapsed, that would tell us that Chuck is is in denial. And maybe the, maybe the fact that he only dropped the box tells us that he's going to say, hey, Maybe there is something to this thing of it being only in my mind. It seems like I'm all right right now. It's not that he's putting one over on everybody all the time. He thinks it's real. And so for him to see pointed evidence of it not being real, now he's able to go out into the world. That could easily set up what I fear is going to happen in the next episode, which is the case is going to end up th- through the fact that Chuck is still a partner and that he it's not a pro bono case and that he used his copy code to do it and you know through the firm's resources that it's going to bring the case into HHM and that Jimmy's going to get shut out and i feel like that could be the we've heard that episode 9 has heartbreak in it and i've been trying to picture who gets killed yeah but it occurs to me perhaps the heartbreak will be uh you know Chuck and Kim kind of taking the case away from Jimmy. I don't know if that's likely to happen, but it it could easily happen. And it wouldn't be too out of character for anybody if that happened. I think that's a very good theory. And it sounds a lot like what the show would do and, and where they would leak something very heartbreaking is going to happen in nine or nine and 10 or whatever they've said. And for a while, you know, we kind of had the thought, maybe the heartbreak is that, is that, uh, you know, Chuck, maybe he's going to lose his partnership and then get committed. And I, I started to think, well, maybe, uh, maybe Jimmy gets so mad at Hamlin that he, that he commits Chuck, even though Chuck is doing better or something. And that would be super awful and heartbreaking. But I do like your theory a lot that, that Jimmy gets 
shut out of this case that he was so happy to be in with with Chuck because Chuck goes back to the firm and and takes the case with him and that would be super hard for Jimmy who and we've just had it underlined uh how you know that big hug was just super sweet and really uh you know just told us directly how much it means to be working with his brother do you have any other thoughts or, or observations or, or anything you want to get out? No. Nope. All right. Well, you know, every week we have been saying, or almost every week, we're pretty good about mentioning that you can reach us at Saul underscore searching on Twitter, and you can also email us at saulsearching at gmail.com. And this week, someone did email us at saulsearching at gmail.com. Mm. And this time, Chris, it was not someone that I know or that I think you know, just oh. the one name, Reginald. So mm. I've only known one Reginald, I think, in my entire life, and I don't think it's it's him that wrote this and I think you may know the same Reginald. Right, and that's the only Reginald I can think of that I know. Let's meet the new Reginald and see what's up. The subject is rekindling that old spark. And he says, I found myself in an extremely taxing relationship. It started off white hot, and for a long time, I couldn't get enough. However, the highs got too high and the lows got too low. By the time the end came, I was so emotionally spent, I was happy that it was over. Now a new relationship has come along that I'm very hopeful about, but I feel better prepared to handle it in a more measured and mature manner. Of course, I'm talking about Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul. Breaking Bad took so much out of me that I wasn't even going to watch Better Call Saul. I came late to the Breaking Bad party, and it was already on for four seasons before I started binge-watching it from the beginning on Netflix. But I gave Saul a try when it first came on, and I think it's a great show. Thanks to your bonus episode, I went back and reviewed Saul Goodman's first appearance on Breaking Bad. It was like a blast of cool air assaulting my nostrils, and he capitalized the letters that spell Saul in assaulting. So this guy put some thought into this, Chris. Uh-huh. Assaulting. I'd forgotten how funny and suspenseful Breaking Bad could be at times. Anyway, thanks for the trip down memory lane, and keep up the good work on your podcast. That was a great letter. Thanks, Reginald. And it makes me feel like we're reaching someone. So that was uh, uh, super nice. So I think that's the end of the episode. And um, I guess I'm ready to say the thing that we say, unless you have anything else you want to say before we say the thing we say. The only thing I've got to say is hot talk. Hot talk. Hot talk.